Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm joined by Dr. Dean Miller. Dr. Dean Miller is a marine biologist, an adventurer, a filmmaker, a photographer and a writer. And he's had many articles in Australian Geographic. He also hosted the AG documentary series, Australian Geographic Explores. Today, Dean is Managing Director of Great Barrier Reef Legacy, a non-profit organisation dedicated to the conservation of coral reefs around the world, and with particular focus on our own Great Barrier Reef. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dean Miller to Talking Australia. Well, it's a, a bit of a strange one, really, because as our listeners would know, we normally record our podcasts in the podcast studio at Australian Geographic, otherwise known as the stationary cupboard. But because of COVID-19, we're all working from home. So this is one of our first podcasts that we've done where we're all recording in different parts of the country. So we're sort of nailing the technology to be able to bring you a podcast from all where we're all in different parts of Australia. So we're in new territory. So um, we're going to see how we go. But so far, so good, Dean. Well, I feel honoured and uh, just to let you know, I am looking at the Great Barrier Reef right now. So look, it's, uh, it's right on topic. Well, that's great because that sort of means it's a sort of a live podcast from the place <laughs> that we're going to be talking about. Although I have to say my view in Sydney is a little bit different. It is my own backyard, which is as it is these days. But anyway, um, whilst the uh, epidemic and the pandemic uh, rolls on, um, the, the environmental issues that afflict our planet also roll on. Uh, in the way that they have been doing. So a coral bleaching event um, after only two years after the last major one is very disappointing. So, Dean, what do you know about this event that's unfolding at the moment? Yeah, look, we've been keeping a pretty close eye on things. Uh, I think we all know that this has been a really, really hot summer. Uh, I think we've experienced not only very hot days in our own homes and backyards, but uh, have seen what's ha- been happening with the uh, the forest fires. Um, and the same thing has really been happening underwater up here on the Great Barrier Reef. It's It's been very hot conditions, clear, sunny days, uh, perfect conditions for bleaching, really, um, and no real... I guess wind uh, to mix up the uh, the water and and kind of you know get that temperature um, really hovering around you know a, a reasonable um, degrees Celsius to to ensure that corals will survive. So what they've done is really experienced a, a warm water situation uh, which mm-hmm. really stresses them out and then on top of that they're getting lots of uv direct uv uh, sunlight which kind of acts like a bit of a sunburn really so what we're seeing is a lot of shallow corals being affected uh, mainly in the inshore and mid shelf sort of sections um, but outer reef is is also partially affected too so uh, terry hughes uh, from james cook university has been doing aerial surveys 
uh, over the last couple of weeks, and they've reported that, yes, this is a, another mass bleaching event now, uh, the third in five years, as you mentioned. Um, we were up around the Lizard Island area uh, and the Ribbon Reef area, which is kind of north of Cooktown, uh, diving up around there. And we saw bleaching at virtually every site that we went to. Uh, it was much worse on the inshore sites as, as was, you know, sort of predicted. Um, but out on the outer reef, it, it, you know, was happening out there too, even down to sort of 16 metres. So um, again, it's been a really hot summer. The water temperature has been about two degrees above average. And, you know, the, the really interesting thing about corals is that they just can't get up and, and move away. They have to stay there. Uh, and when that warm water comes along, um, it really does provide a, a stress moment for them. And, you know, it's not just a couple of days, it's, it's weeks on end. Um, so, yeah, really disappointing to see the third mass bleaching event in five years. Um, the question, you know, that we have to really ask ourselves is how many bleaching events can the corals make it through what where's the tipping point here um and you know that's a a real you know serious and uh an interesting question for managers and scientists and even you know the general public you know this is our great barrier reef you know is yeah. is it going to be okay that's the question here well i, I guess what's happening is i mean the, when corals bleach and you might want to explain a little bit about what that what leads to the bleaching that what that process is it can be a temporary situation and the coral can actually get its color back again if the water temperatures cool down but i think what we've seen is and what we know about corals is if they don't get time to recover then it can kill the coral off altogether isn't that right Absolutely. So, yeah, let's have a little chat about bleaching. So uh, basically, it's, it's, as I said before, both warm water and UV stress. Um, so if the water temperature is too warm for too long, basically the, the coral is a, it has a symbiotic relationship. The coral is an animal and in its tissue it has algae and bacteria. And the algae provides about 95% of its food source by producing sugar. So it's like you or I having leaves under our skin and basically just standing out in the sun and getting all the food that we need, which is, you know, that, that'd be pretty handy um, until, uh, I guess, when the, the warm temperatures come along. So uh, the water temperature is too warm. Uh, the algae within the tissue starts to create a toxin. Um, and the coral has really no choice but to get rid of the algae to stop making that toxin and, and basically says, look, you're a bad roommate, um, I'm sick of what you're doing to me, and it ejects the algae. Uh, and in doing that, it gets rid of 95% of its food source. Um, corals are an animal. Uh, they're like a, a little jellyfish, really, so they've got polyps, and they're able to still feed by taking uh, small microscopic uh, organisms and, and plant material out of the water column so they can still survive during these bleaching events and it's called coral bleaching really because the the algae's now gone out of the tissue and the algae gives the coral all of its color so the pinks the blues the browns mm. the purples all the beautiful colors that you see in either brochures documentaries or if you've been lucky enough to visit our great barrier reef you will have seen them firsthand um, so when that algae's gone the tissue of the coral is is really only very thin, and it's sitting on top of a calcium carbonate skeleton, uh, much like the bones in our in our own bodies. And they're, as you can imagine, stark white. So that's why it's called bleaching, because you can see straight through the tissue, and you can see the skeleton underneath. Um, as you mentioned, if the temperature drops, the coral can survive. So bleaching's not a death sentence in itself. It's it's mm. very much a stress event. It's like you know having a fever, and when that fever breaks. You, you return uh, mostly back to normal. But if you can't break that fever, then, you know, 
theoretically the, the corals will die and that's when we see mass coral mortality so there really is you know two sides of this story so the bleaching can happen because of a heat stress event and also uv um, if that stress event goes away then the corals can recover however they're you know somewhat impaired in the coming years for for spawning events for instance um, or if the temperature stays too warm for too long then that's when we see corals die um, and that's what we saw in 2016 2017 is really just water too hot for too long and and we saw mass mortality um, we don't seem to be seeing that this season so thankfully we had a a fairly good couple of weeks of bad weather up here, uh, which meant windy, cool conditions, uh, dropping the, the water temperature, and most importantly, really taking away that UV stress. So as you can imagine, just sitting on a beach or out in the open for, for days and weeks and months on end in direct sunlight, uh, that's just too hot, too, too powerful. Um, you know, mm. it's going to take its toll. So hopefully there's not the big mortality event that we, uh, we experienced in 16, 17 this year. And yeah, but it's still probably too early to call that um, as we are now towards the end of March, isn't it, Dean? Especially yeah, look, we've got to get out weeks. there and, and, and get underwater and have a bit of a look around. As you can imagine with uh, COVID, that's really difficult. Boats aren't running yeah. and, uh, you know, you can't get out outside and do those things, which is a really uh, testing time for, I think, uh, scientists and marine scientists um, wanting yeah. to know what's happening with the Great Barrier Reef. But look, here's hoping, um, you know, it's spared for this summer, but... As again, uh, you know, we, we've got to come back to the question, how many summers can, can we last? And the, the thing about corals is that we're asking the corals to do, uh, you know, an extraordinary thing within a lifetime. And that's because corals can live for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So, you know, we've bumped up the temperature in the last couple of hundred years through burning of fossil fuels in the Industrial Revolution and, and you know, up until now. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of temperature increase has usually happened over thousands of years. We're asking the corals to do it in their single lifetime. And that's where the tricky sort of scenario comes in. So, you know, they haven't had generations and generations to adapt to this, uh, you know, new kind of heat wave. Um, they're, they're really just being asked to do it now. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, the, the, the Great Barrier, if we think about it, it's 2,300 kilometres long, something like this, the most enormous thing to try and research you know this is such a huge area and obviously it's offshore so accessibility is is an issue do you think that somewhere out there in in the great barrier reef there would be areas that are perhaps not as susceptible as others do you think that there are any areas that that may actually be building any resistance at all to these major the coral bleaching and the and the warming temperatures of the ocean Absolutely, yeah, um, and that's a real kind of uh, saving grace for the the Great Barrier Reef. As you said, it's it's a very big uh, area. I think it's one hundred and forty four thousand square kilometers. Um, don't quote me on that. Maybe three hundred and forty four. I can't remember exactly. Yes, it's, it's bigger. What right? we know is it's big. It's something. It's very. These numbers are almost meaningless because we don't. We need something to compare it to. But certainly, you can fly over it for quite a few hours. Yeah, and, I think it's the it same size as. Same size as Italy, I think they keep referring it to. Um, look, it is big. Uh, there are 3,000 individual reefs. And if you can try to imagine if you took the water away, what that would look like as a, a geographical structure. It's kind of like, you know, a big sort of open plain with lots of hills and mounds and, and long sort of expanses of um, substrate. And so now throw the water back on top of that and throw tides and, and currents and things like that. And you're going to get, 
extraordinary amounts of water movement uh, that's really hard to predict. Now, when you get that water movement, you get changing in temperature um, alongside the Great Barrier Reef is the Coral Sea. Uh, that's, you know, 2,000 odd metres, you know, within uh, probably a kilometre or two of the edge of the Great Barrier Reef. And there's lots of nice cool water down there. Yeah. So that's why we see on the outer Great Barrier Reef, they tend to be a lot more protected than, say, the inshore and the mid-shelf because the, the inshore and the mid-shelf, uh, you know, tend to live in sort of shallow, turbid water areas um, mm. that, that heat they're, up they're much quicker. And they're affected by a lot more things than just the, the heating of the water as well, aren't they? Uh, much more sort of human impacts directly off the land. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, you know, before... 2016 came along uh, we thought the the Great Barrier Reef was just too big to fail and we were really concentrating on uh, things like water quality crown of thorn starfish uh, you know fertilizers going into the water that kind of thing um, mm. but 2016 came along and showed us that no you know that this can really affect uh, a big expanse of the Great Barrier Reef and very very quickly and the the one part that was affected the most was the far northern Great Barrier Reef and that was the most pristine part of the reef that we had so from say Port Douglas to Cape York um, mm. is is where that far northern section is. Uh, there's really no no massive population centres. There's no you know huge farming. There's no river uh, outputs um, that would take farming effluent away uh, onto the Great Barrier Reef itself. It was the best reef that we knew, and that's the part that bleached the most. So the take home story is, there is. You know, you can do everything you want to reduce water quality and crown of thorns and, and all those other things. And look, we should still keep on doing that. But when mm. bleaching or when, you know, warm, warm water comes along, there's no escape. And so we've got to address both things equally. And I think that's what we're not seeing. We're seeing a lot of on the ground activity and, uh, you know, sort of uh, addressing you know, water quality and crown of thorn starfish. Yep, that's great. Absolutely. Let's try to build up the resilience of the natural system. But we've got to yeah. address the major problem, the elephant in the room, which is climate change. We'll be back with our conversation with Dr. Dean Miller after a quick break. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. You have sort of dedicated uh, your life in recent years to this through the organisation Great Barrier Reef Legacy, which I mentioned earlier. Tell us a little bit about that organisation, what role it plays in sort of bringing, I suppose, the, the problems that beset the reef to a much larger audience and, and communicating, which are sort of quite complicated ideas <laughs> to the biggest possible audience. How do you do that, Dean? Yeah, look, it's a great question. Um, I think the the whole reason Great Barrier Reef Legacy was created in the first place is because there was a group of really passionate uh, marine scientists, educators, tourism operators, um, multimedia professionals. Uh, the, our group or our team really sort of, you know, realised that if we got together, we could start doing really good things and really quickly. And being non-profit means that we can cut through the red tape and, and just get stuff done on the ground. And that's kind of where... 
uh, Great Barrier Reef Legacy started. It's saying, okay, we can do things very cost effectively and we can do things very, very quickly. And by doing that, we can make a big difference. And so the, the three things that we really sort of concentrate on is research. We understand that we need to um, work out what's going on in the natural system uh, to understand the problems and then to try to find the solutions. And up until now, there's really only been one research vessel by the Australian Institute of Marine Science out there doing its thing. Uh, scientists have very limited capacity to access the reef. And so we were trying to overcome that. And we've run uh, over five uh, collaborative expeditions for researchers all around the world now. So part of getting the researchers out there is, is part of solving that problem. Um, the other one is education. We realise that we need to get the next generation up to speed as quickly as possible um, to kind of hand the baton over and, and get them you know, running with this as soon as they can. Uh, and so education is a major uh, component of what we do both in Australia and overseas and we really love that working with the kids is just the most fantastic thing and we've got some great partners and collaborators there and uh, the final one is really communication so um, communicating with a global audience why you know why it's important to try to save coral reefs and you know for someone in maybe Melbourne or Sydney that that might not make much sense but you know coral reefs uh, contribute I guess, a major life history step for over 25% of the ocean's marine life, um, which is really, really important um, and, you know, is super important to hundreds of millions of people around the world in the equatorial zone. So, you know, we lose coral reefs, we lose a major part of our oceans, but also it's going to have a huge social impact uh, on the world, um, much bigger than what we're seeing right now with COVID-19. Uh, and so those three things in unison really allow us to, A, get the research out there to the, the students and the next generation, and then communicate everything with the global audience. So we're all on the same team. You know, this is a, a global problem which requires a global solution. So we better start playing as a big team. So that's really where Great Barrier Reef Legacy evolved from. And uh, since uh, 2012, which is when we started, we launched in uh, 2016 and we've run, uh, as I said, five major research, education and multimedia expeditions now um, for a range of different reasons. The first one was to go up into the far north and find out what had happened underwater after the 2016 bleaching event. Again, we sort of, you know, we had the, the aerial surveys, but no one had really got underwater and, and worked out what had happened. So we took a team up there of uh, experts from Australia and uh, around the world and, and we searched for the super corals, the ones that had survived. Um, and that was a really important sort of component. It, you know, we knew that corals had really been impacted, but what were, where were the survivors? You know, who were they and, and where did they exist? And that's coming back to sort of, sort of your question about, you know, are there spots that are really good still? And the, mm. the, the answer is yes. Um, and you, you did on that expedition, I think that was that in around November in 2018 that you went up there, you did actually discover a very large area of reef that was untouched. Yeah. It's what you called a super site. Yeah, we called it the Legacy Super Site or Charlie, Dr. Charlie Verin uh, called it the Legacy Super Site. Um, we found it in 2016 actually with our team and we'd sort of been just mm -hmm. uh, diving around looking for really, you know, where corals had survived and uh, happened upon this spot and it's about... Uh, two or three hundred meters long by about 30 or 40 meters wide so it's a, a small section of a larger reef and it was absolutely phenomenal and uh, Dr. Charlie Veron who's also known as the godfather of corals he's you know spent his entire life researching describing and naming corals um, got out of the water and you know he'd sort of you know, almost given up hope on the Great Barrier Reef and then he, we found this site and it had over 205 species of 
corals in one section. Now, to put that in perspective, there's about 400 species on the Great Barrier Reef. So this one site represented over half of all the known corals that we knew on the entire Great Barrier Reef. So it was nature's biobank, really. Um, you know, it, it was a an absolute hotspot of biodiversity amidst this kind of, you know, desert of devastation. topography or, or or just luck or, or what was it <laughs> i think it's a combination of all those things and look we've had a few researchers look into it um and and try to work out exactly what's happening and you can only really infer you know you can't get to the the absolute mm, nitty-gritty but yes. it's right on the outer edge of the great barrier reef so it's got that cold water influence um it's it's kind of in a back eddy situation so it doesn't seem to uh i guess um be affected so much by all the warm water that's coming off the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon on an outgoing tide um, and why it's got this absolute biodiversity we, we still don't quite understand because we never found another site like it even within you know just kilometers of that area so mm. there's something about that particular site where you know lots of currents from lots of different places kind of end up there and the energy kind of drops out and and that's you know perhaps where the spawn settles um, very very luckily um so yeah yeah it's a it's a, an amazing place um however in november last year we went up uh looking around because uh, we knew that cyclone trevor had been up around uh that area and gone straight over uh the legacy super site so we we're a bit worried um and on our expedition last year searching for biodiversity we actually well, it was a really tough trip because we spent two weeks trying to get outside of the, the cyclone damage. And so there was cyclone damage from Princess Charlotte Bay to about Rain Island, which is about a 100-mile stretch. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. the legacy super site was uh, a victim of that, that you know, severe uh, weather event. And so, you know, theoretically, that biodiversity has been somewhat lost uh the the site doesn't resemble anything that it used to uh it kind of looks like it's been sandblasted um, right it was smashed was it by the cyclone yeah yeah really disappointing um mm. so we spent the the rest of our expedition trying to look for other areas of biodiversity and thankfully uh dr charlie Verin did it again and he found a site that had 267 species of coral so yeah. look those spots are out there you know they're they're the absolute, um, you know, necessity for reseeding the reef. And that's that's what really needs to happen. We need to have these kind of little nursery areas that at least have the, the capacity and the resilience to get through these uh, heat stress events that allow kind of the spawning and the reseeding of the, the areas around them. Uh, so they're hugely important, these little hotspots. And tell us a little bit, was it the discovery of that super site in the first place and, and obviously ongoing research that led you to found the Coral Biobank? Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, that initiative that, that GBR Absolutely. Legacy is now involved in? <clears throat> yeah, no problems. Um, so we've just launched a project called the Living Coral Biobank Project. And basically what we're trying to do is collect all living specimens of all species uh, from the Great Barrier Reef and then uh, around the world. So there's 400 species of corals from the Great Barrier Reef and there's 800 species of hard corals uh, from around the world. And what we plan to do is build a special holding facility here in Port Douglas and basically house living fragments of those corals. And 
The, the really interesting thing about corals is that they are one of the only animals uh, or organisms out there that kind of can live in perpetuity. Um, as I said earlier, you know, corals can be up to 100 uh, or hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. So they have this ability to just keep keep living, uh, which is really, really extraordinary, but makes them a perfect candidate for, for a living coral biobank. So like the seed banks that we have around the world where we've collected yeah. genetic material, it's exactly the same uh, scenario, except that we're going to keep living fragments alive. And there's one really important reason for that, and that's because uh, corals have this symbiotic relationship with the algae and the uh, the bacteria within their tissues. So not only are we keeping the corals alive and that, that genetic material, but also their symbiotic partners. And they're the really important ones because they're the ones that are kind of deciding the fate of corals right now because they're the ones that are affected by the, the heat stress events. We've hooked up with uh, a partner called Cairns Marine up here in uh, Cairns who's uh, an absolute world leader in coral husbandry and transport and they're going to help us collect the corals and uh, keep them alive um, we've also partnered with dr charlie Varon. Uh, he's going to be doing all the underwater identification um, and really the plan is to go and collect many representatives of each of the species of, of, of corals on the great barrier reef and keep them alive so we know that the the corals in the far north are the ones that are doing it the toughest and that's where we're going to concentrate our collections first um, mm. because with each bleaching event what we're doing is losing the most vulnerable corals and that's something that no researchers are really focusing on no one's out there kind of working out which ones were you know we're losing which ones are disappearing with it the, with these heat stress events we kind of always you think that some of them might disappear before we even know what they are? Uh, yeah, there's a possibility. In, in 2016, uh, Charlie discovered one, if not three, new species of corals uh, at that legacy super site. So there's, mm. you know, thousands and, and you know, well, it, it, the, the ability for us to know everything on coral reefs is, you know, impossible. So, you know, we don't even know what we're losing. And I think, you know, we always talk about corals, but we, we never uh take into consideration that you can't have a coral reef without coral right so they're the kind of the foundation or the building blocks of this amazing uh incredible ecosystems you know some of the most biodiverse communities on the planet with you know hundreds of, of thousands of different individual animals representing thousands of different species you know in 10 square meters um you know we're, we're losing that and that's really what it comes down to the coral is the is the the habitat it's the food source it's the hiding spots it's it's everything uh that a coral reef needs and it's just the beginning isn't it i mean because well <laughs> yeah. we think of the coral and we think you know and i i even think that not everyone really understands that coral is a living creature it's an animal yeah uh, the coral is just the start but then so many different species rely on that coral so many fish and so many marine creatures are also part of that ecosystem so if we lose the coral we lose so much more absolutely and look there's a, a real kind of uh, tipping point here and as soon as we lose a, a certain amount of biodiversity of those corals we're going to start losing ecosystem function and i think that's you know, probably the worst thing that we can uh, experience. Um, we're already seeing that on some reefs on the Great Barrier Reef, particularly the, the inshore and the mid-shelf reefs, uh, where algae has become the dominant kind of uh, life form. And once the algae settles in, it's really hard to get rid of it. Um, and mm. that's what's happened around the world where, you know, uh, local communities have used dynamite fishing, for instance, to, to kind of harvest their coral reefs. The algae moves in straight after. And then when the coral spawns uh, from neighboring regions, the, the little spawn can't settle anywhere. And even if they do, they get out uh, competed very, very quickly by the fast growing algae. So 
there's that real phase shift in uh, having either a coral reef or, a, or an algal dominated reef. Um, and so that's a, a really scary prospect. And, and as I said, uh, in diving in the last couple of years up in the far north in particular, where the coral mortality has been high, we are seeing those, those algal dominated reefs start to take place. So um, what can people do, Dean? What, 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 if people are listening to this and they're thinking, well, I've never even seen the Great Barrier Reef because we, we know that tourism is not seen as one of the threats to the reef, that in fact uh, the benefits of tourism far outweigh the sort of negative aspects of getting people out there. But if people can't get there and at the moment, of course, people can't travel anyway, what, what's, what can they really do to, to, to help or to, to, to ensure the future of our coral reefs? Um... It's a really good question. It's one that I get asked almost daily. And uh, I think my response changes almost every time. (laughs) And, you know, this time, I think what we're seeing in our behavioral shift in response to COVID-19, this this dramatic response to an immediate threat is kind of what we've needed uh, in the environmental space for a long, long time. Um, And you know what? It's showing us that we can do it, that life, you know, is going to have to change a little bit but we can get on with with our jobs and 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 do things we don't have to travel as much you know we're doing a podcast now from a remote location as opposed to me coming to sydney you know these things are all possible and that's the kind of shift that we need while we're doing everything that we can on the ground on the great barrier reef that great barrier reef legacy we need Mm. the whole world to respond to this climate change issue and it's funny because you know we trust the science with COVID-19 we we trust the science of the numbers that are coming out with the you know trying to flatten the curve with the the vaccine hopefully going to be produced but you know there's still a lot of mistrust in the science in terms of climate change and I think Mm. you know it's it's you know a bit um uh, ironic to be able yeah. to pick and choose, you know, which yes. which Look, sides you want to interesting, It's been an interesting, well, interesting is to put it mildly, but certainly it has showed us that we can, I mean, we've been forced to completely change our lives um, over the last few weeks. And as you say, we're trusting in the scientists and we're not arguing with them because, you know, our lives are, are we're all personally uh, affected and personally immediately in danger from this virus. So it does give us hope for the future in terms of being able to respond to other emergencies that are maybe not so obvious and maybe don't affect us as directly as we see uh, COVID-19 affecting us. But, um, well, look, it's great to hear from you, Dean, about uh, that this year's bleaching event may not be as bad as the one two years ago. And, and, you know, we wait and see, uh, uh, see what actually is the upshot of that when people can get back out there. But um, we're very proud of the work you do. Australian Geographic is a media partner for Great Barrier Reef Legacy. So, you know, we do whatever we can to help you communicate your message. And we appreciate also the fact that you get citizen scientists out onto the reef. So as well as getting scientists out there, you get lay people out there and they can also learn and become ambassadors for the work that you do. Absolutely. And look, we love working with Australian Geographic and uh, we have a motto here, Great Barrier Reef Legacy, and it's only together there are no barriers too great to save our reefs. And look, that could not be more true right now. Um, We all need to work together Um, and, you know, we're, we're part of a a big team, uh, a big global community that uh, is facing a, another global crisis, which is climate change. It's a, it's a long-term one, um, but we've got to come to the challenge and uh, I, I really think we can do it. I think we can. 
I, I love your uh, belief and your enthusiasm. <laughs> and it's a great message. So I look, I'd like to say thank you to you, Dean, for joining us on Talking Australia today. My absolute pleasure, Chrissy. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Dr. Dean Miller. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email at podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you'll never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.